I, uh, I will be reading um, the scripture today on Matthew, by the way. It's good to see everybody. Um, and we're reading from John 1, 1 through 5 and then verse 14. So the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights. My name is Stephen Chung. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we are in a series, we're in the third part of our series this morning, called The Story Behind the Doctrine. And, and as Matthew just read for us, we've been sort of deep diving into this same passage each week, John, the first few verses of John chapter 1. And we've been using that to, to look at certain uh, doctrines. We've looked at the doctrine of the incarnation, and we've looked at the doctrine of the resurrection, and now uh, we're going to look at the, the doctrine of the Trinity. With that said, um, I'd like us all to stand together and read this uh, creedal statement together. It's part of the Athanasian Creed, and you may believe this wholeheartedly, um, but other friends here this morning I know may not believe this at all. But it's okay. By standing and reading it together, you're not committing yourself to anything. Uh, so let's, let's, let's read this together now. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Amen. You can sit down. That was fun, wasn't it? You know, if, if there is any doctrine that makes Christianity Christian, it might be this one. It might be this one. Um, this is in every great ecumenical creed, whether it's the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the, uh, the Athanasian Creed, which is what we, this, is, this comes from. Um, all of them find their shape around this claim that God exists as three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. All of the major ecumenical creeds are, are sort of undergirded by this Trinitarian theology. I suppose we might summarize the claims of the, the claim of the, the uh, Trinity um, with these following seven statements, and I'll just put them up on the screen and read them for you. Um, one, there is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. And essentially, all the creedal statements and all the theological jargon that gets wrapped around this are essentially trying to make sure that we can say all seven of these statements at the same time. Or, or whenever we assert one of these statements, we're not asserting it in some way that somehow cancels out all the other six. Right? 
And so there is some theological jargon in there. If we go back to the Athanasian Creed for a second, uh, there, there is this word essence and this uh, distinct person. Uh, essence, if you think of the word essence as, as sort of godness, so it's saying all three people are equally God. There isn't one member of the Trinity who is more or less God than the others, than the rest. And then person, of course, is, is making sure that we understand that these are uh, particular individuals distinct from the others. And we start to capture a glimpse of this plurality in God um, in, in this passage that was read for us in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Wait, how can the Word be God and with God at the same time? Are there two gods? And when we add the Spirit, are there three gods? No, there's just the one God. Okay, so one person. No, 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 I didn't say that. Not one person. There are three persons, one God. One God and three persons. That's, that's the claim. I don't know about you, but um, whenever I read these creedal formulations uh, and, and these doctrinal statements, some, sometimes I've, I've, I've had this sort of contradictory reaction to it. On the one hand, it's almost as if what they're trying to do is wrap up reality in some nice, tidy system and tie it all with a bow. Right? It's as if they're trying to pin down ultimate reality. It's as if they're trying to reduce the, the infinite to a, fine, a series of finite statements. So it feels like that when I read these things sometimes. And then, on the other hand, sometimes you might feel a little bit confused by them, right? It's, do these people really know what they're trying to say and what they're getting at in these muddled statements, seemingly contradictory statements? And so, so you, you see, there's, on the one hand, sometimes I've felt that these people are trying to oversimplify things and, and dumb things down too much. But on the other hand, uh, it seems in the very act of doing that, they're, they're messing it up and, and they're just overcomplicating things, making things more complicated than they really need to be. I think what needs to happen is we need to, for me, what I needed to happen, I needed to flip my understanding of what these doctrinal creedal statements are, are about and how they're meant to function in our lives. You know, that's what this series has been about, right? We've been, we, the last few weeks, we've been looking at how the, the doctrine is really like the table of contents and, and uh, for the story. And the trouble is we've created a generation of people who are obsessed with the table of contents and so unfamiliar with the story that actually uh, time and again, when Christians are confronted with the actual orthodox story of Christianity, they're suspicious of it because it's so unfamiliar with the story. They're affirming the right doctrine, but they don't know where it fits. And, and so we need to reinsert the doctrine back into the story, which will supply the needed meaning, right? So, so, so the story is not there to pluck out bits of it to prop up our doctrines. That's how we often use it, as a proof text to prop up our doctrines. But it's the other way around. The doctrines are supposed to reinforce key moments in the biblical plot line. So it's this, this flip that needs to go on. And again, this morning, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing for this, this flip that needs to go on in our understanding of how these doctrines are meant to function in our life. These are not explanations in the sense of trying to make things understandable. Um, in, in, in that sense, it, it's, not a, it's the opposite. It's not, it's not an explanation of anything. It's not trying to explain anything but rather it's bringing forward the inexplicable nature of the triune God. This is not about trying to resolve something, but it's actually trying to make us feel, oh, it's making us, doctrines are making, they seem such dry things, they're meant to make us feel something. Yeah, they're meant to make us feel something. They're meant to make us feel 
this unresolved paradoxical tension. And so instead of thinking of it like, a, you know, someone's closed the door on things and said, there you have your answer, there it is, it's the opposite. Think of it, these doctrinal statements as opening a door and ushering us in to a deeper mystery. Explanation, resolution, easy answers. No, no, it's not about that. This is about the inexplicable, the paradoxical, about the profoundly, deeply mysterious. And it was this inexplicable, mysterious, paradoxical God that had captured the imagination of the early church father, Origen. Why do I mention him? Well, because he was the first to start to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity, the first expression of this plurality that he saw in, in the scriptures in, in God. As a young boy, his father refused to say, Caesar is God. There's always that political dimension. Each week we've been noting that. He said, no, I won't say Caesar is God. And so as a young boy, he saw his father beheaded. And then as he grew up, he found himself in the same situation as his father. And again, he said, no, I'm not going to say Caesar is God. I will not allow my reality to be flattened out like that. I will not allow, so I won't say it. And so he was sentenced to be tortured. You know, the, the, the amazing thing is that the people who sentenced him, they didn't want to do it. They were reluctant because they admired, they admired his brilliant intellect and, and they just come to admire him for the person, for the human being that he was. But the law is the law and they didn't have any choice and so they sentenced him to be tortured. But he was so enthralled with this paradoxical, not flattened out, not resolved, paradoxical, mysterious, inexplicable God that he never relented. He's released uh, and eventually, uh, about a year later, he didn't quite recover, he didn't recover and he, he died from, from that ordeal. It's interesting, isn't it? The story has always been and this is another one of those flips that we've been noticing in, in our understanding of doctrine. The story has always been doctrine is used it's an, it's a, to give power to the church to control a population through fear, right? But actually, it's the other way around. None of these doctrines emerged that way. They emerged out of, in, in a moment of intense, per, when the church was being intensely persecuted by a very controlling state. That's where it emerged from. And it was sustaining them through this, this sort of persecution. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's a shame in, that in the West, we, we don't really like mystery. Our, our intellectual tradition is, is such that we like to, to label things, and we like to categorize things and put them in, in their place and, and tabulate things. Um, it's the inheritance we have from, from Francis Bacon. No, Eric, not your favorite painter, right? The guy he was named after, most likely, right? The great empiricist, Francis Bacon. And, and so, he, you know, we, without him, we don't really tabulate things, but with him, we tabulate things, right? And so, and so we, we, th this is our inheritance. 
And, and so when we come across something like the Trinity, there's a couple of different reactions that I notice come up in the Western church over and over and over again. And it's repetitious. But, uh, but So the other day, I was, I was uh, about three weeks ago, I was, in, I was in a meeting, and for some reason the Trinity came up. Someone mentioned it, and, they, and someone said, well, uh, it's not something you can really understand. True. Hard, difficult to wrap your head around. A bit of a mystery, really. But as Christians, we just, you know, we've got to believe it. Right? And, and, and essentially he was talking about it like it's this cumbersome piece of theology and doctrine that should just be left in those heavy theological terms up on the shelf to gather dust. It's, 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 speak, and this is a conversation I've had over and over again. People speak about it this way. And it, it's like, it would be like me looking at, at a complicated, mathematical, mysterious equation. And it's just for someone who's a non-mathematician... Okay, so for me, it's a fairly basic mathematical equation, and it's just a jumble of letters and numbers, right? And, and it's meaningless. And so I set it aside. It's along the lines of, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I'm not sure medieval theologians ever actually asked that, but it's the caricature, right? How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Uh, who knows and who cares? And so we just set it aside. That's one way to deal with mystery, and that's very often what we do. The, 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 other, the other way that, that uh, we, we deal with mystery is we, we actually try to flatten it out, and we're going to iron out all the creases, and we're, go- and we're going to resolve this thing. And so here's what I hear over and over again uh, from Christians and from pastors. This illustration, I'm going to illustrate the Trinity for you. The Trinity is like the man who goes to work, and he's the boss at work. Then he goes and meets his wife for dinner, and he's the husband to that woman. And then he goes home and he puts his kids to bed and he's the father to those children. And so it's the same person who is the boss, who is the father, who's, who's the husband, but, but he's just acting in three different modes, right? It's the same, same person. Now, this is actually a great illustration, but not for the Trinity, but for the heresy known as modalism. And, and therefore, that's why I always say most Christians are actually heretics, right? So, so this is true. So mo- most Christians are heretics because they, they actually affirm over and over again the doctrine or the, the heresy of modalism, which says God is, is just acting behind, uh, same person acting behind three different uh, drama masks, if you, if you like. That, that's uh, what's going on. So we set it aside or, or, we, we, uh, or we, we try to resolve it. You want a picture of what happens if we flatten reality out that way. When we set the mystery aside, we try to resolve the tension of paradox. I was talking to someone the other day who I met at a friend's wedding recently, and, and um, she's doing what most people do uh, are doing at that, that age, in, in, somewhere in her 20s, and she's, she's really just unraveling her entire faith She's pulling it apart, and she wants to see if there's anything left at the end of the day to put back together again. She's letting the whole thing come unraveled. Meanwhile, as she's going through this, it's hard work doing that. If you're going to do it not in a lazy way, right, but you you work at it. It's hard work. Some of you are going through that. Some of you have been through that. It's hard work to do that. But while she's doing this, uh, the church that she's attending is going through a series on evangelism. And each week they're being told, you better get out there and you better tell people about your faith because if you really care about the gospel and God, if you really care about the people in your life, then this is what you will do. And they're shown this little diagram to draw. It used to be the bridge illustration, but I'm behind the times. There's some circles now, apparently. right? So, so there's these diagrams and there's these questions that go along with the diagrams as well. And 
And she says, look, sometimes these conversations, you can imagine, right, they become really awkward. <laughs> they become really awkward. But it's okay, because the pastor's anticipated that. He, he said, hey, what's a little bit of awkwardness compared to eternal damnation? Right? Don't you wish that guy was your pastor instead of me? I shouldn't say things like that. So I won't. Um, this is, and this kind of guilt that's laid on really thick, it's laid on really thick. It starts to bleed into so much else of life. And, and, um, and she said in the text recently, and I, I got her permission to, to say this, so don't worry, if you text me, I'm not gonna, you're not going to suddenly have your text read out loud on a, on a Sunday morning. I got her permission to do this. But this is what, this is what she, she said. She said, this is the description of a Christian experience. Try harder, do better. Do what you can to be palatable to God Try to prove myself to change a disposition of the unchanging, immutable God towards me. Working hard to anticipate how God feels about everything you do. Work out to take care of the body that God has given me, but I shouldn't work out too much because then it might be an idol. I should read books to improvise my understanding of the world, uh, to improve my understanding of the world, but not read other books for longer than I read the Bible because that means I'm putting someone else's word over his. Be the best employee your employer company has ever seen to improve your Christian witness, but don't seek attention from others. Make sure you don't do anything wrong and do everything right, but whatever you do, don't be legalistic. Try harder, do better. And it's okay, because Jesus died for you, and so you don't need to feel any shame. But are you feeling grateful this week? And so you go round and round it goes, right? And so here's what I'm getting at, and what I think all of this points to. This is about a very tightly managed reality where everything is measured out precisely and labeled and in its place. This is what happens when you push the inexplicable out. This is what happens when we try to manage mystery. And so she says, I, I feel like we're missing something. And she said, I know this is going to sound a little bit crazy and out there, but she said, I'm just wondering. This has just started to dawn on me. I'm wondering if what we're missing here is God. <laughs> yes, I think she's onto something. The inexplicable, mysterious, paradoxical, triune God who sustains origin through persecution and execution is who we may be missing. I mean, the God that she's been experiencing, I'm not sure such a pedantic being, not the, be not the source of all being, but being, very powerful being, is, is really going to sustain you th through the worst times. It's interesting because in the Jewish tradition and, in, and also in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, I think this is, this is more so. And I know we've got some fans of the Eastern Orthodox tradition, right? and I, I totally get it. The inexplicable, the paradoxical, the mysterious, you don't set those things aside, and you certainly don't try to resolve it. But instead, what you do is you press into it. In the belief, in the belief that stepping across the threshold, that, thre that threshold into that paradox will actually elevate our lives. It will enhance our relationships. There's a conviction that in some way it will lift our whole reality. You might think of it as mystery of the sort 
as something which has the, the potential to, to make life noble, that impart dignity. In other words, the Eastern church and Jewish belief is that by stepping across the threshold into that mystery, by allowing ourselves to feel the paradoxical tension for more than two uncomfortable seconds, right? Okay, really sustain it, feel it for more than two uncomfortable seconds. By experiencing the vertigo that comes from something so utterly inexplicable, we will end up seeing further and seeing more clearly and understanding more deeply, and we may end up loving more profoundly. So the question I want to ask is this. What space is there in our lives as we go about trying to keep everything managed, keep all the balls in the air and keep spinning all the plates, right, and manage life and manage our realities, tightly curated? What space is there in those tightly managed, curated realities is there for mystery? How do we allow mystery into our lives? Or to put it the other way around, when the door is open and someone is ushering us in to step across that threshold into the mystery, do we do, we do that? Where, where is that space during the course of our week to enter into mystery? Here's another question. What happens if we were to meditate on this mystery of the triune God, again, for more than a few moments in the course of the week to actually dwell in that slightly uncomfortable place of not understanding? What if we saw this doctrine as a door to step through and we pressed into this mystery of the triune God? On the other side of that door, we might, I'm speculating, that's what we can do with mystery, we might find that instead of an undifferentiated monad, the singular unit God, an isolated being God, defined by power God, we might find ourselves instead in the midst of a community, a divine community, defined not by power, but by love. The Trinity is what allows us to say God is love. It's not a monad, it is this community, Father, Son, Spirit, this eternal community of love. Think about a dinner that you've enjoyed with someone else, a group of friends, family perhaps, where the food is wonderful. And you know the host has gone to town and every mouthful is full of flavor and the conversation around the table is sparkling and there's lots of laughter. And you get each other and you understand each other and you revel in each other's company. It's a moment you'd like to stay in a little longer. And so you do. The guests linger, savoring the hospitality, enjoying the company, which makes you grateful to be alive, grateful for friends, grateful for family. Perhaps meditating on this mystery, we find the God who is himself within himself Mysteriously more like that dinner I was just describing. Much more like that than, say, you or I off on our own trying to control the world around me. God exists as Trinity, or another way of saying it might be to say that God exists as community. And to step across the threshold into this mystery, sustain it for long enough, 
we might begin to wonder and dream and imagine what it might be like for our lives to participate more fully in this divine community. Let us pray. Father, we live busy lives and we're trying to keep all the balls in the air and spin all those plates. And sometimes it feels if we stop for a moment, it's all going to come crashing down. And so we try to curate our lives and our reality, manage everything. And sometimes we find ourselves even trying to manage you. Father, we thank you for the great doctrines and creeds of the church that emerged during times of intense persecution, which sustained Jesus' followers in years gone by for generations. And we pray that they would serve to sustain us, your church, today. By being doorways into that story, may we have the courage to step across that threshold into the deeper mysteries of you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. <laughs>